Our reading today is from the book of Matthew, chapter 10, verses 26 through 36. It comes after Jesus has given instructions to his disciples to go and tell people about him. He has just warned them, as part of these instructions, that they might face persecution. And then he says this, Have no fear of them, for nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered, and nothing secret that will not become known. What I say to you in the dark, tell in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim from the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And even the hairs of your head are all counted. So do not be afraid. You are of more value than many sparrows. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and one's foes will be members of one's own household. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. First, I just want you to know I'm going to talk about a place called Corimila, and it is where a lot of our liturgy actually comes from today, from some of their liturgy. But I'll mention that in a minute. There's a question that always seems to come up when you meet a new person. First, you say your name. Maybe you say what brought you here or how you know the person that you're both there to see. And almost immediately, the question comes up, what do you do? It's a weird question because it's always asking, what do you do for work? So I sometimes love to respond in weird ways. Like, I do a lot of things. Today I did this. But normally, the expected answer is your profession. There are a few ways that people react when they ask what you do and you say, I'm a pastor. I've labeled them, and there are four. There are more than four. One, the anxious repenter. They get nervous, maybe even start to sweat, and usually go silent. If we've been talking for a while longer, this reaction quickly turns into the meme from The Hangover, my companion doing mental calculus to figure out how many sins they've committed in front of me. And then come the apologies. I'm sorry for swearing. I didn't mean what I said about so-and-so. I really hope you weren't offended by that. My typical response to this is usually to work in a swear word of my own as I try to convey nonchalance and acceptance. Number two is the scholar. This ranges from an average person who starts telling me about the Bible stories they learned as a kid to the theobrogens who start talking about the latest greatest writing of the Gospel Coalition or how much they love Jordan Peterson. Number three, the jaw-dropper. These are the people who immediately blurt out, you are a pastor? <laughs> I get this one a lot from people I grew up with, 
most of whom thought that Catholics weren't real Christians. And when I said I was Presbyterian, asked me, what is that? Is that even Christian? I also hear it from more fundamentalist Christians who don't believe women should lead or preach in church. But occasionally, I hear the question in a non-judgmental context. When a person of little to no faith is surprised to pair my vocation with our interactions so far. You are a pastor? And then there's number four, the deserter. The people who have been so harmed by the church that they are basically unable to continue a conversation with me, and we part ways. These reactions, and a few more, are the reason that I can count on one hand the number of times I have told people I'm a pastor if we've just met. I will often say that I work with teenagers, or sometimes that I work at a nonprofit. And I will only give more detail if it's requested. There have also been a handful of times that a youth, or a parent, or a friend has introduced me as their pastor. And almost always, they follow up this information with a phrase like, she's not a regular pastor, she's a cool pastor. <laughs> it's a compliment mixed with an apology with a dash of, she's not a narc. I hear it so often, it's on my Venmo profile to help people recognize me. Growing up in the deep south, Corey and I both have plenty of experiences with judgmental faith problematic theology, and friends who have been harmed by the church or who have left altogether. Though some people have told me that's not true here, I found it everywhere that I have lived and served in some measure. And I happen to know I'm not the only person in this space who is hesitant to tell others that I'm a Christian. In fact, it's a topic that has come up several times with the youth just this year. On our confirmation retreat in January, I'm sorry, I'm really annoyed by this ringing. I'm going to switch to this one. Is that better? Okay. On our confirmation retreat in January, the church that we visited was advertising a small group that was reading the book, Messy Spirituality, God's Annoying Love for Imperfect People. I wrote it down and ordered copies within the week and we started reading excerpts together on Sunday mornings with the youth. It brought up several interesting conversations, like an hour-long debate about whether you could use swear words and be a holy person. Our first conversation, though, was about the image of a perfect Christian. They quickly pointed to Jesus, his acceptance of everyone, and his sacrificial love. Then they mentioned Larry. They called him, I've told him this, a faithful, theological old guy <laughs> who has his stuff together. <laughs> they said some more nuanced things later. But then the conversation turned quickly to the more negative images of the perfect Christian. They named the narrow and sometimes impossible expectations that many Christians have of one another. Modesty, chastity, not swearing, going to church, praying, knowing the entire Bible, like Larry, and generally being perfect. The words that they or their friends associate with church or Christianity that they mentioned 
where fundamentalist, forceful, judgmental, and hypocritical. This is a reality of being Christian these days, and it's one that we don't always address. How many of us downplay our own faith to avoid further traumatizing those whom the church has harmed? And on the other hand, how many of us are willing to proudly associate ourselves with certain outspoken Christians in the news who have taken over the narrative of our entire faith tradition? Now, it's comforting to know that none of these students use these words to describe Westminster Presbyterian Church, but the greater church. We, your pastors, know that we have something very special here. I've had friends and family visit and remark immediately on how welcomed they felt, even in comparison to other churches where I've served. I've been amazed in just my two years here how many people, both new and long-standing members, who say that finding Westminster Presbyterian was like coming home. There is a special kind of Christianity in this particular church, a version of our faith that looks a lot more like Christ than the Christians who dominate the news cycle, the same Christians who often work to remove rights from protected groups. Just nine days ago, we returned from our high school mission trip. I'm still tired. We began our trip in Northern Ireland at a reconciliation center called Corimila, where we learned more about the troubles, the violent conflict between Catholics and Protestant that still sparks up from time to time in Northern Ireland. We heard stories about how the leaders and volunteers at Corimila would bring together individuals from the groups in conflict. Those individuals would share their stories, imagine each other's perspectives, and simply converse over shared meals. Those experiences and conversations then shaped their encounters differently as the war went on. Then toward the end of our trip, we served with St. David's Parish outside of Edinburgh, and we talked about why their church will be closing next year. The Church of Scotland, the original Presbyterians, is downsizing to match its membership. And so we talked about how the political narrative and the Christian narrative has impacted Christianity so much in the past few decades in both the UK and the US. People have left our faith often because of the harm inflicted by their own churches, but also because of a generally harmful narrative about what Christians believe. Too often, Christians in the news have aligned themselves with narratives of persecution rather than acceptance, with judgment rather than justice, and even with hate rather than love, or worse, disguised in the name of love. Some of the girls drifted off as we talked. It got a little bit intellectual. Some of them were completely clued in. But I strolled over to the ones who had gotten lost, and I offered them a more direct example of what we were talking about. My example was from a film they know all too well. In the 2020 documentary, Miss Americana, there is a pivotal scene in which Taylor Swift is arguing with her dad. She is trying to convince him that she needs to start using her platform and her voice in a political way because staying silent is going to tear her apart. 
She tearfully describes the policies of a candidate she cannot stay silent about, saying that the candidate votes against equal pay for women, against the Violence Against Women Act, and also in favor of discrimination against gay couples. She says, I can't see another commercial and see her disguising these policies behind the words Tennessee Christian values. Those aren't Tennessee Christian values. I live in Tennessee. I am Christian. That's not what we stand for. We learned a lot on our trip about working for reconciliation in the midst of conflict. But the trip also helped me articulate two ideas about reconciliation that I've been pondering a lot this year. One, that like me, and like many of you in these pews, our students struggle to reconcile the current image of American Christianity with their own faith, if they are willing to claim faith at all. And two, that perhaps these two things are irreconcilable. There are many issues on which Christians themselves are diametrically opposed, from biblical interpretation to trans rights, different views of justice and injustice, views on which we may never agree. Many of us in this room have different views on many of these things. I guess it depends on whether you think reconciliation or even unity requires us to agree. What we learned about reconciliation is that it's about building understanding and trust between individuals, which can influence groups in conflict from the inside out. In the end, there is not agreement on what is true or right or wrong. It's a different kind of agreement. In Northern Ireland, it is the Good Friday Agreement, which celebrated its 25th anniversary this year. It struck a compromise that allowed everyone to move forward with both sacrifice and satisfaction. I'm still not sure if Christianity as it stands can be reconciled, if we can reach a compromise when we seem and are so polarized. But after our trip, I have an even more pressing question. How do we reconcile a conflict that we continue to avoid? Jesus has a few words to offer us on this matter. Our passage today is part of the chapter-long instruction that Jesus gives his disciples as he sends them out into ministry for the first time. This is not at the end of Matthew, the Great Commission that we most remember, but it is toward the beginning of their ministry together, not long after the Sermon on the Mount. As usual, Jesus seems to speak in metaphors and hidden messages. In this instruction, he uses many contrasts. He seems to humble the disciples by telling them they are not above the teacher, and then he uplifts them by affirming their worth in God. He says that he will whisper and share secrets in the dark, but that they should proclaim them from the housetops. And he directly opposes the idea of the Messiah from the prophet Isaiah, the Prince of Peace, when he says, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Many have taken this reference to the sword as support for radical and even violent revolution. But the word translated as sword is the Greek word makaira. 
It's actually referring to a Roman short sword, a larger knife that was often used as a tool, though it was also used occasionally for violence. This is the same kind of sword that Peter uses in Matthew to cut off the ear of an officer who comes to arrest Jesus. But here, many commentators see this word as symbolic, as a direct contrast to peace. And again, while we often think the opposite of peace is war, it's clear that Jesus is not calling for violence or military revolution in any way. If there is a doubt to what kind of division he's referring to, he follows it by quoting the prophet Micah, who said that children would be set against their own parents, that we will argue within our own households. In Luke's version of this passage, in Luke 12, he actually uses an entirely different Greek word. I have not come to sow peace, but diamerismon, discord. It's the only time this Greek word is used in scripture, which I think can also highlight this turn of phrase as unique. Essentially, Jesus is saying to his followers, there is nothing easy about preaching our message, and there is nothing easy about changing the status quo. This is a revolutionary message, and it will cause conflict. That is part of the cost of following Christ. It's the second time in this chapter that Jesus has warned them. Just before our reading, he said, you will be persecuted by outside forces. And now they hear there will be division inside their own households. Yet in the middle of all this, he says to them, do not fear. I have not counted myself, but this is said to be the most common phrase in the Bible. Some even claim that it appears 365 times one for each day of the year. In this passage, he says it three times. Have no fear. Everything will be made clear. Do not fear. Those who kill the body cannot kill the soul. Do not be afraid, because you are worthy to God. These are lovely sentiments, but I'm not sure that even 365 times can ease the fear and anxiety that come from stepping outside of our comfort zones. It is in our nature as human beings to fear the unknown. We have literal fight-or-flight instincts, and it is fear that inspires them. We fear loss and tragedy, and so we try to prevent it or control what will happen if it comes. We fear that we do not know enough, speak well enough, or that we are not worthy enough. We fear saying the wrong thing or causing more harm, so more often than not, we stay silent. We fear conflict with loved ones, fearing that it will lead to resentment, separation, or estrangement. Often, we even fear hope. We are just like the disciples after the resurrection, who are confronted not just with the hope of a resurrected Christ, but his physical presence, and still they were hesitant to believe it. It is hard to hope, because it makes it all the much harder if people disappoint us again. If the test results aren't clear, if the job doesn't come through, if the smoke doesn't clear, if the world doesn't change. I have come not to bring peace, but a sword. Jesus's words tell us that we will face division and disappointment and even failure for the sake of the gospel. 
we often forget that on the other side of loss, hurt, conflict, or failure, there is also healing. And having experienced estrangement from loved ones myself, I can attest that this side of the conflict is worlds apart from the years of avoidance beforehand. Maybe we misunderstand the idea of peace as much as we misunderstand the way that Jesus used sword. On our mission trip, many of us described Corimila as a place of peace, a place of stillness, of comfort, even a place where worry cannot reach us. But another understanding of the Greek word for peace is just as connected to Corimila. That is the idea of wholeness, that all will be united, a sense of restoration, or rather, reconciliation. Like Jesus, we live in a broken world where some people are considered more valuable than others. That peace, that wholeness that he is talking about will never emerge if we don't face the things that have already torn us apart. If we don't talk about the division that is already among us. If we don't face our fears and dare to hope that God might bring future peace, real peace, even with a tool or sword like division and conflict. Is the current image of American Christianity one that we stand for? Are we willing to speak up, to name ourselves Christian, to reclaim and change the narrative? What could the larger church learn from Westminster about welcome, acceptance, kindness, and love? What can we do to make Christianity more like Christ? more like the people that our youth admire rather than these perfect Christians. We find our strength in Jesus' words that we are worth more than the sparrow. Whether disciple or teacher, oppressed or oppressor, we are all human, we are all created by God, and we all have a part to play, big or small. But we cannot conquer fear without hope. We cannot be afraid to hope, to believe that things can change if we try, even if we might be disappointed, even if children are set against parents. We can continue to love one another, to find strength in community, and to hope beyond our fear, to hope that by confronting our division, God will bring peace and reconciliation. Amen. Amen.